Hello, everyone. Welcome to our podcast. I am Alicia Swami, and I'm here with Keely Severson and Eric Johnson, and we are Exposing Mold. Today, we have a special guest, Carrie Cooper, who we actually found on Instagram. So I had recorded a video about mold exposure killing children, and there have been some serious situations that have occurred here in the U.S. and abroad of mold exposure in the home not being addressed when the tenants notified their landlords or their property managers, and the dismissal of the severity has basically caused the deaths of two toddlers. So these were recent stories. So I actually decided to go back in the history to see how prevalent this issue is. And I wanted to make it known that children are dying from mold exposure. And this isn't something that is new. We set out on a blog post the other day. And one of the photos that read was, in the age of information, ignorance is a choice. So I think that we, in 2020, 2022, moving into 2023, the influx of children and their families, including pets, are being harmed by toxic mold. And this is on the rise. I think everyone knows about it by now. In my clip, I talked about Seattle Children's Hospital causing the deaths of children because they refused to replace the heating and cooling systems. Now, I had a conversation a while back with Emily Rochelle from Texas Mold ins- Inspectors, and she mentioned the majority of heating and cooling systems, HVAC have you will, have mold issues, the majority of them. That's really alarming. So Carrie, you left a comment and you mentioned that you were a lead HVAC technician at a major medical school and you chose to leave that position because they refused to address the poor air quality present in their buildings due to moldy equipment and duct insulation. You mentioned, and I quote, the solution was to ignore it and muzzle the one trying to correct and raise awareness of it. I doubt it is any different at any other institution in the world that operates inside the system. We would love to learn more about you and what you have been seeing working as a lead HVAC technician. Great. Thank you for having me on. Um, I guess the, the, the biggest thing that I've seen throughout my entire experience, and I guess I kind of want to get it out front that uh, since the early 2020, just prior to uh, COVID occurring is when I left the industry from the standpoint of actually working on equipment, installing equipment, servicing equipment. And since then, I have done um, inspection services on heating and air conditioning equipment, but that's pretty much been limited to damage claims arising from storm-related incidents, whether it be lightning strikes, uh, or you know hail damage or storm damage um but pretty much the entire career for me goes back to starting in 2008 and i would say that i would agree 100 with what you stated that a majority of the equipment out there has some degree of mold contamination just by the nature of how the equipment works the actual process that is taking place inside of that equipment and chiefly it arises from Two things in my experience. One, from the fact that during a cooling cycle, not only are you lowering the temperature of the air that is passing through the system, you're also removing humidity. And that humidity turns into liquid water, which then is collected and drained out of the unit. And that's where a lot of the sort of, you know, growth of different, you know, biological, um, you know, whether it be mold or or bacteria, that's where it's it's given pretty much an ideal environment to grow inside of those systems. Um, as well as that, along with the air being circulated, there's 
dust and dirt, which is from what I've learned is the, is the food for mold. So that's kind of an overview of my, you know, sort of a, 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 an abridged version of my experiences, but that's kind of the, sort of the fundamental problem with, with equipment is it's, it's a, an ideal environment for mold and bacteria to grow in. How often do you think equipment should be replaced? Like, are we using equipment beyond its its life expectancy? And basically, once it it hits its life ex- expectancy, it becomes this major driver of mold exposure and God knows what else. I think you had mentioned also the insulation breaking apart and coming through. Yeah, I think it's it's sort of a combination of factors where you have just, I mean, maintenance is an expense and you know, most of the equipment that I worked on was in buildings that were, um, you know, they weren't tenant owned. They were owned by, uh, whether it be that, you know, property management groups or, you know, a, a larger, you know, sort of governmental group that, um, you know, basically provided the the space for these other institutions to operate out of. So, um, I think that maintenance gets, get skipped and um also the the people doing the maintenance just really aren't aware of the the threats that are you know that that can occur inside of those units so um but furthermore there are sort of design flaws that um i I had mentioned in in my in my comment there with the insulation being placed inside of the ductwork as well as the insulation that's placed inside of the units is uh it's porous to some degree it it does break down over time, and then that insulation, along with whatever is growing on it, breaks off and makes its way into the airstream. Now, when you were becoming an HVAC technician, I mean, during your training, was any of this mentioned? Like, you know, here are the health implications of toxic mold. Like, if we're not doing this right, this can cause issues for people in the building. Like, what was your training like in comparison to, I guess, what you were doing in the real world? I think that. Definitely, there was some awareness there, and I, I I would hope that it is has changed since it's been um, you know fifteen years almost since I I started my education. But the a lot of it was focused on uh, because my program was a combined program that that both trained plumbers and heating and air conditioning technicians and installers. The a lot of the focus was on the things that had occurred um within plumbing systems but um also there's a, a fairly common disease known as uh, legionnaire's disease and that actually resulted from the sort of the first case of that was from a uh a cooling tower which is um you know part of a commercial cooling system that um basically uses recirculated water on a, a unit that's mounted on the roof to kind of reject the heat out of the air conditioning system. The the difference being though that water and the air that passes over it, it that's never really introduced to the inside of the building, especially from a design perspective. So um, I think really as far as looking at the actual units and equipment that handle the air inside of the building, there really was nothing specific related to like the health of the occupants that was that was strongly educated it was more you want to keep the growth like inside of the um what they call the evaporator drain pan that's where when all the humidity is 
removed from the air during the cooling process, that's where that those droplets of water drip into. And the concern there was to keep that clean so that there wouldn't be a drainage backup that would cause, you know, building damage and also cause the um, humidities to the buildings to, to rise. Thank you for that. I, I'm just curious, like going back to your work in, you know, medical schools and, and doing all that. So their major gripe was simply they didn't want to pay for maintenance of their heating and cooling systems. I mean, like, don't they have people on staff that are ready to fix the building at any time? I mean, I used to work in a high-end hotel and we had a whole staff of engineers that would be on top of the building 24-7 if something broke. It's like, are these schools not operating operating at that same capacity that they would rather save on costs than fix any problems within the school? Um, I, I think that it's they definitely do from a, a standpoint of keeping the equipment functioning and um also, I guess a, a lot of the that equipment that I had those experiences with wasn't so much in like the critical areas of the buildings, but it was more um, for areas that that didn't serve like specific medical purposes. But still, as we all know, that all the air in the building mixes. So if you have one area that has you know a mold problem, then that can make its way into you know into other areas of the building. But um, it. It definitely is that, I mean, I think everyone even, you know, on a household level works from a budget. And if there's not sort of that um, establishment, um, you know, knowledge that 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 mold in the in the air can cause all these health problems, they're not really going to um, address it unless it's something that that starts to impact the, you know, the functionality of the, the equipment from a perspective of is it heating and cooling properly? Um, so it's, it's, it's kind of one of those, those double-edged swords where it's like these, uh, institutions kind of have, they set the tone for the industry, but at the same time, their policies are shaped by the tone of the industry. I'm curious as to if they were ever in your training or even at the hospital, like, were you ever given any information on how this could affect your health if you were fixing, uh, a moldy HVAC system? Um, well, I think that the, you know, there were kind of general um, precautions as far as, you know, you, and I guess one thing that I do want to say that I have, I have seen in a lot of um, facilities, because obviously with myself having health problems, I've been to a lot of different hospitals, both for myself and members of my family. And one thing that I have noticed probably in the last couple of years is that really anytime there's any maintenance done in a, uh, like a patient room or, uh, even in a, like in, in a patient wing that there's, that I see a whole lot more air scrubbers now being employed and, and, you know, um, isolation that you would see similar to a, uh, you know, from a remediation aspect, but, um, Really, the 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 training was more, and this even extends back to times that I was working at like research facilities, government facilities. That it's kind of like in certain areas, they, you know, there there even was, you know, you basically had to be dressed for, you know, for for biohazard conditions. But I think really a lot of the focus was on what was being handled in that particular area of the building, whether it be a biological or chemical agent or, 
things of that nature, not so much something that might be growing in the system. Um, but there are, you know, the, they're definitely in those areas where there's known threats, there's, you know, special types of equipment that are used, the materials that the, the equipment is made out of, you, you find UV light systems and other things to keep um, growth within those, you know, systems at bay, but just sort of in your, your, your general, you know, office spaces that you might find in a, you know, a medical office building, let's say that's uh, on, on the campus of one of these institutions, uh, you, you don't find that uh, level of precaution available or, or in place um, just as a matter of sort of that's just not deemed necessary, I guess, by from a design perspective. Are you seeing as a result of this neglect of, I guess, self-protection or lack of education, are you seeing many other HVAC technicians like you like falling ill? Um, from their just and exposures in these situations? Um, I don't, you know, I, I don't see as many, um, I guess from a perspective, obviously, um, you know, being, being male that I guess statistically these things impact us less um, from what, what I've read. I've, I'm by no means an expert on the, the medical end of things, but just from what I've heard from practitioners that treat me and from, sort of the information and support that I've found through uh, social media, that that's something that um, more often impacts uh, women and that it's something that, and obviously within my trade, there's, it's a predominantly male trade. Um, but I do, I even had some one teacher in particular that um, actually died during, um, you know, my, my tenure in school that, um, and, you know, he had gone from being a competitive bodybuilder as well as, you know, one of the a very highly respected, um, you know, member of the local and really, you know, just known for being extra knowledgeable, having um, a great skill set. And he did a lot of his work in uh, medical institutions, specifically um, installing and serving the medical gas systems that um, that, you know, provide oxygen and nitrogen and other um, you know, vacuum services to the, you know, to the patient rooms and into the ORs and everything else. And, um, you know, he basically on paper, everything that he was doing in, in his life would indicate that he would, you know, be a healthy person, but, you know, he just got these mystery illnesses. He ended up with sepsis. He ended up with, um, you know, going from being a bodybuilder to, you know, being confined to a wheelchair and, uh, you know, and morbidly obese from, you know, maybe from other factors, but, um, that, that's one that really sticks out in my mind. Um, but also generally it's, it's, I think it's kind of accepted within the work community that like the longer you work, the more you age, you're just, it's natural that you have aches and pains. It's natural that you start to have back problems and knee problems and shoulder problems. And it's just kind of, written off to wear and tear. And I often think about how much of that premature wear is, you know, is driven by, um, you know, sort of just an unhealthy inflammatory response that, that stems from occupational exposures. Wow. Thank you for that. That, that definitely is, it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, you said you had, you also have been affected and visually just by looking at you, you don't look like a, a super old guy. You know, you look like a very healthy younger gentleman and um, somehow this has affected your health. Maybe could you talk a little bit more about how your work in this field has caused maybe some health issues for you? 
Um, sure. It's, um, I mean, for me, like, I guess mine's a little bit more unique case. I, I grew up in a home that, that had mold problems, um, and sort of growing up, I had some different weird, um, health issues. I remember one time when I was in my, uh, I think I was still in elementary school. I was, you know, I was a pretty strong kid. I could always, you know, climb to the top of the bull rope in the gym when, you know, back in, you know, I guess I kind of dated myself, but that's, you know, one of our gym activities was see how high you could climb on the bull rope. And I could always climb up to the top and ring the bell. And, uh, I remember one day I was playing in my basement and I just felt like I lost all my strength and I couldn't, that was probably halfway through fourth grade. And for the rest of fifth grade, I couldn't make it barely even, I think the best I did was to get halfway up the bull rope and just, you know, told the doctor about it. And it was just sort of shrugged it off. And then, um, so I, and then I had like some digestive issues. I changed my diet in high school. So I, a lot of these things sort of self-corrected as I, as I aged, but, um, for me really what, and I, you know, of course, growing up on the, the, the East coast, I had some Lyme exposure as well. Um, tons of tick bites. So it's, it's kind of a, I guess, sort of a typical formula that you see for people with sort of mystery illnesses like mine, but, um, it really came to a head when I, I moved into, um, a house that I knew had a mold problem. It had mold in the bathroom. Um, you know, in addition to my work in the heating and air conditioning industry, I had done a lot of, um, you know, residential home renovations and almost every one of those involved some degree of mold. If I was either renovating a kitchen or a bathroom and, but just kind of living in this really moldy house. And then, um, you know, the contractor I worked for at the time, uh, kind of serviced a lot of older buildings. So I spent a lot of time in, you know, in molding mechanical rooms, um, working on, uh, a lot of poorly maintained swamp coolers, which are kind of popular in the, uh, in the region that I live in now here in the, in the Rocky mountain region. And, um, so kind of everything sort of came to a head and, um, you know, I, I basically went from being able to, work a 50 hour week and then take off on the weekends and either, you know, ski both days, or I could, you know, go for, for hikes with my dogs and do an eight, 10, 12 mile hike easily with, you know, a two to 3000 elevation gain, uh, within that hike. And I, you know, I feel like probably within eight weeks or so, I went from being at that level of vitality to, um, almost passing out if I would get up at night to go to the bathroom. Um, you know, I would get winded climbing up a flight of stairs, whereas I used to be able to, like I said, take a two or 3000 mile or two or 3000 foot elevation gain and just not even get short of breath, even at the top. So, um, yeah, it was a pretty, pretty drastic change for me. And I got pretty much the typical response from sort of the standard, um, you know, medical institutions when I was trying to figure, figure things out. And it really took, um, I'd say really about, I'd say about three, at least three, possibly five years to get kind of the full, like the full picture of everything that was going on. Um, it was fortunate for me that, um, I'd had some family members that had had Lyme disease. So that's right where my mind went. Um, but because I was not in a, you know, a CDC endemic area. Um, I, you know, that was like, oh, that's impossible that you would have it. Um, and it actually took me going back to, um, 
to the East Coast, to the to the home I grew up in with the mold problem um, and seeing doctors there that had, you know, 30 years of experience treating mold or not mold patients, I'm sorry, but treating Lyme patients. And, you know, that kind of chipped away at the illness enough for me to start to see some recovery by treating, um, you know, treating Lyme and then also, um, you know, found sort of over the years, some, um, um, you know, of course, common co-infections, mycoplasma, Epstein-Barr, and then really it was just kind of over the last um, couple of years, honestly, from the the, the knowledge that I got from um, other chronically ill individuals on Instagram, and then, of course, folks like yourself that provide so much valuable information to the community that I really started to understand how much um, mold had a factor in it for me from both the perspective of where I lived and the kind of work that I did. And for, for me, it's still, it's still an ongoing, you know, process and I'm really, you know, fortunate to, um, you know, have access to providers that are, are well-versed on all of the issues that, um, that I'm dealing with, but, you know, still, I, you know, I'm definitely not back to where I was before, um, you know, I got ill and I'm not, I'm not sure if I, you know, I ever will get back to that point, but, um, you know, at least I'm, I'm slowly getting better and I'm not getting worse. So. Yeah. It's notable that Lyme disease, uh, I mean, a Legionnaire's disease came to the forefront in 1976 with that, uh, horrible outbreak that killed all those Legionnaires and, um, uh, mold wasn't even on the radar. Mold wasn't discovered for another 10 years until 1986. So the indoor air quality uh, groups, professionals, they weren't even looking at mold for another 10 years after the sick building syndrome concept was invented. Yeah, it's, it's pretty remarkable to me how, how uh, you know, how long it takes for things to sort of set in and even kind of reading the stories. I, I you know, for me, it's kind of the, the Lake Tahoe um, Truckee outbreak there that really kind of resonates with me because you had, you know, basically like Olympic level athletes that were being told that they got so sick because they're, they weren't living a healthy lifestyle. So it's like how much more healthy of a lifestyle can you live? Absolutely. So you have heard about us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was amazing. The people up at, uh, Incline Village used to complain that if you weren't in training for the Olympics, you almost felt out of place in this society. Everybody appears into mountain climbing, water skiing, mountain biking, backpacking. I mean, it's just nuts. Um, if if you had a remotely sedentary lifestyle, you you literally felt like you ought to move out of the community. Interesting place. So it was really bizarre that anything weird would ever happen at Lake Tahoe, the last place you'd suspect. So yep. when you were uh, on the quest to discover causes for your mystery illness, did anybody bring up chronic fatigue syndrome? I, I don't think it was ever specifically mentioned, but I think that um, if I look back to sort of my first encounter with, I'll, I'll just say conventional medicine professionals that, um, you know, I kind of got two impressions. One that was, it was kind of like, I one doctor in particular prescribed, um, I believe it was, um, you know, just an anti-inflammatory, which I could have gotten over the counter. And. And basically it was like, you need to, you know, exercise and, you know, your joint pain will go away and stuff. And I'm just like, well, what about all my, you know, other stuff? And then just like, it was kind of just sort of 
completely ignored. And I was like, you know, the, the, uh, but sort of the people that did pay attention to it were more on the like nurse practitioner, physician, assistant spectrum. And they kind of, I could tell they were trying to tell me something, but they couldn't, they couldn't say what they wanted to say that, you know, that, and I kind of looking back now that it was like, you've, there's more to this picture. I think at one point, one of them did mention that it's, you know, some of my symptoms sounded like chronic fatigue, but they almost were like, you need to go to a different doctor. Like you're not going to get what you need healing wise going on this path. Um, It just took a little while for that to sort of settle in. But like I said, I was, you know, fortunate enough that um, just because of other circumstances, mainly for a holiday visit that I found myself back on the East Coast and I got a referral from a longtime client of mine from, um, you know, from renovation work to go see this one particular Lyme specialist. And that, you know, when I visited him, he looked at every one of my symptoms and was like, this is pretty much one of my typical cases. But of course, because he had even started his uh, treatment of Lyme disease patients before any real understanding of mold was around. He didn't even, you know, mention like what's the air quality like at home or anything of that nature. But nonetheless, it still did provide a, a significant change in my health just to address that one factor in the broader spectrum. So when you um, were getting an education and acquiring all these credits and certificates and all the all the people that are issuing this knowledge, did it ever seem to you that maybe their own knowledge was a little bit lacking somehow? I, I um, I'm not sure about their for the subject matter that they were teaching. They were definitely very knowledgeable. But um, I mean, one thing that I I think back to that sort of when I started my particular program, and I think this is kind of a standard thing that you had to sign a waiver that you are knowingly going to go in and be exposed to you know, dusts, um, fumes, chemicals. Um, I think there was something in there about sort of like biological threats, things of that nature, that this is basically part of the job and that, you, you know, you can't, you cannot hold the contractors, you know, responsible for that essentially that, um, and just, there were very few things that were, you know, like I said, if there was, if I was working in an area where they were, you know, working with known pathogens, then we were notified and given um, sort of, you know, protocols to follow and, and PPE standards. But, and then also anytime there was an area with, uh, you know, asbestos or, um, and sort of later on in my uh, professional experience, they started raising awareness of the, the silicas and, the, and those threats to health, but um, really nothing was, really specifically mentioned about, you know, mold and its impact on both the occupants and the, you know, technician itself or themselves um, in a, you know, in regards to the industry. Well, it sounds like having a waiver suggests that they knew that there was a little more risk than perhaps they were letting on. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's just one of those things that you're you're eager to start a new trade. It's a very uh, lucrative trade, um, you know, still with, you know, the, the economic slowdown that is uh, impending, I guess. There's still a, a big shortage of, of technicians. And I, I kind of wonder if that's kind of a result of the, you know, the, the occupational hazards that aren't recognized, how many, you know, people such as myself don't 
you know, have to cut their careers short because of, you know, all these exposures that, you know, have kind of a slow insidious impact on health. So you are looking around at other people in your profession and seeing how their health is, their ability to perform in their job is being lost. Yes, yes. And and definitely it's um, it's kind of two pronged there. I, I definitely worked with people that, you know, sort of continued to work their way through it because they just, they didn't have the, you know, the means to find something else. They didn't have the means to start over and they kind of just, you know, beyond the sort of just, you know, natural wear and tear of a, of a physical trade that, you know, I could just really see that they were, um, you know, in my opinion, were in much worse shape than they should be for someone that, you know, is, is kind of getting paid to work out every day. Um, and then there's other people that just, um, that just, you know, kind of left the, the trade altogether or ended up working in, you know, in building maintenance where they, they were spending less time sort of in the, the dirtiest, most hazardous parts of the job. And they were, um, you know, more kind of handling the lighter maintenance end of things. Um, and actually just sort of talking about this brings back, uh, memories of one of uh, my classmates that they spent a lot of time cleaning the, um, you know, the, the, what's referred to as the condenser side of chillers. And that's where the, 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 the water that, um, that can contain Legionella circulates through to kind of remove that, the heat from that, from that chiller. And it was almost like clockwork every time they did what they called punching the tubes. Every time he would do that uh, service, he would get some sort of a respiratory infection. And he actually ended up, um, you know, being out of work for a little while because um, he basically was like, I can't keep doing this. I need to do something else. And they ended up laying him off. And it wasn't until he could find a job with another contractor where it was just more kind of general maintenance work that he, you know, returned um, you know, back to getting on the job experience. We'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors. Home Cleanse, formerly known as All American Restoration, is a company that specializes in improving indoor air quality through proper mold remediation, offering services nationwide. You can visit them at homecleanse.com to learn more. The Mold Guy performs mold sampling and testing for homeowners, renters, and businesses. Please visit themoldguyinc.com to learn more. Black Diamond Services provides solutions to the unforeseen challenges that can affect homes and families with no out-of-pocket costs. Services include temporary housing relocation and mold test referrals for homeowners. Visit blackdiamondservices.com to learn more. Great Plains Laboratory provides toxic exposure testing to those living in compromised environments. Tests include the Mycotox panel, that tests for mycotoxins in urine samples and the envirotox panels, tests for environmental chemicals in the urine, and provides an overall metabolic snapshot of a patient's health. Visit gp-labs.com to learn more. Thank you again for your sponsorships. It is integral to our ability to serve our community and to improve the quality of life for all. What do you think, Healy? Got any questions? I don't really have any questions, but there's something that you said that really caught my interest. It it sounds like you 
It sounds like you described when you were in fourth grade kind of getting sick in a way that changed your health. And it almost sounded like it was mold-related, but I, I don't know if you came out and said exactly mold, but the way you described going down into a basement and then losing weakness or losing strength in your body, that happens to those of us who get sensitized from mold exposure where we'll have one, like, really significant event that kind of sticks out where our health isn't the same after and I'm just wondering is that what that was for you like could you track that time back to like your health kind of changed at that point like energy strength I know you said you regained it at some point after but I'm just wondering if you were more sensitive after that point and also if you like if when you're in areas if you can kind of like feel mold in your environment um yeah, actually, thank you for, for bringing that up because that was um, something that I kind of thought about before coming on. And um, definitely as a child, I was I was the, the kid that, you know, if there was a disease going around the school, I caught it. Um, so a lot of ear infections, a lot of respiratory infections um, growing up. But definitely from, from that point, I mean, it was even through like throughout high school that I just continued to have, um, you know, I definitely wasn't like the healthiest kid in school. Um, I, I got, um, you know, mono in, in middle school and probably missed like three or four months of school. I, um, you know, I still participated in, in sports, but I definitely was not like a, you know, competitive individual. And, um, I just kind of think back to sort of maybe the, the fitness trajectory I was on up until that point, I definitely did not. Um, yeah, definitely did not continue with that. And I definitely didn't regain sort of that trajectory for, for fitness. Um, you know, really until I, I moved out of that home. Um, it was, you know, my early or late teens, I, I moved out of my parents' house and really just didn't, didn't really return for any significant portion of time. But, um, I, I definitely had, you know, sensitivities to, um, to chemicals, um, and still to this day, I'm really kind of a, um, you know, I kind of consider myself to be sort of a human canary because, um, one thing that really sticks out for me, uh, recently was just trying to get back into the heating and air conditioning trade, but on like the administrative project management side, um, sales side. And there were two inter notable interviews where went in and I was, my mind was clear. I was answering questions, you know, very precisely. And by the end of the interviews, I could not recall just basic industry terms. I couldn't recall like the names of types of equipment. And even to the extent that in, in one interview, one of the interviewers just called me out and was like, is something going on here? Are you are you having some sort of like an attack basically? And I was like, you know, I'm like, your, your building has a significant mold problem. I'm like, I don't, obviously I'm not here testing it, but, um, you know, I had observed sort of during it, we did a building tour before the interview and they had some areas that they were renovating and I kind of could even smell some, some audible or not audible, excuse me. I could just smell some some actual um, you know, mold odors. And then, you know, during the interview process, I basically just like a, a great deal of cognitive impairment came over me. So 
Um, I would say definitely that's that's something that's that's very noticeable for me to this day, as well as you know, looking back kind of historically, I was always the the person, despite working in over the years in different trades, like working at auto shops and um, tire shops and everything that just there would be certain days just sort of like I'm sure maybe you've noticed at some point if you go into a place that sells tires, you're just sort of overwhelmed with that that vulcanizing smell from the from the rubber. And, you know, that would have an an impact on me. Um, Just, you know, even riding in friends' cars, if they had an oil leak and that was getting on the exhaust and you were kind of inhaling some some burning exhaust or burning oil fumes, like it would make me sick. Whereas other people would just be like, oh, why does that bother you? You know, what's it's just the smell. So yeah, definitely a very um probably from that that point forward uh in fourth grade, I've always just been more sensitive to smells and and conditions than a lot of my peers. When you had mono, how long did it take for you to recover? Um, I, I really, th- it was, I almost think that I, I missed a great portion. Even when I returned to school, I think it was, it was probably not until, you know, until the summer. So I think, I think it probably, the illness started in like during the holiday season and I really didn't get better until I was, you know, out of school for the, for a summer break before I felt, you know, significantly recovered. And there was a good, you know, like I said, like two to three months where I just, I couldn't even get to school itself. And then the rest of the time I just spent in school, but still pretty miserable. Back in the 1980s, it was expected that if you got the kissing disease, Epstein-Barr virus, that uh, you might have a difficult recovery, but within six to eight weeks, any normal healthy adult should be over it. If um, somebody did not recover within two months, that was clearly something wrong. And it seems like doctors have completely forgotten about that. Yeah, I'm trying I'm trying to think of the exact doing a little little math here for it was probably in the at that time I was in middle school in the let's see in the late late eighties, early nineties. Um so I'm yeah, I'm not sure if um you know what what the particular, you know, guidelines my doctors I was seeing at the time were going by, but um I do know it actually took a while even to get a good um, positive test for mono, that it was kind of just, and it, you know, kind of thought to be a combination of illness and psychological factors. Cause I know at one point I was referred to a psychologist to see, you know, if it was more about, you know, sort of the typical middle school, um, you know, preteen issues that were keeping me from going back to school rather than my actual physical health. Yeah, they've normalized something that used to be so extraordinarily abnormal that all of society knew that a normal, healthy adult does not have a problem with mono. It's a rite of passage. It's the kissing disease. You get it from saliva. When you start making out, you get the EBV. This happens to teenagers, and they typically get over it within six weeks or so. And then you've got lifelong immunity. And for some strange reason, back in the 1980s, this was no longer the case. People showed up with a chronic Epstein-Barr virus syndrome. And this was the precursor later called chronic fatigue syndrome. And now you talk to a doctor and they look at chronic active Epstein-Barr virus and they don't even blink. But some of the people with the uh, EBV syndrome would complain about these weaknesses, these uh, sensations of going into certain buildings and feeling bad. 
and they'd go to their doctors and get passed off. They'd have allergy tests. Nothing would show up. And some of them go to allergists and the allergist says, well, yeah, you've got some mild reactivity, some uh, allergies to mold and wheatgrass, some pollen and dander, get rid of your cat. And all of a sudden the HVAC would kick on and they'd go, oh my God, you've got it right here in your office. And the doctor would say something like, you know, you're not the first person who said that. Well, okay. Are you going to look into it? No. <laughs> These are allergists. And they wouldn't even take interest in what was going on in their own offices. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Um, just, yeah, the, just the, the, and one thing that, that I learned that was kind of remarkable for me was that, you know, the, the, the first, um, you know, really successful immunosuppressant that made all organ transplants possible is is the mycotoxin and there's there's you know even good friends of mine that i've shared that information with that i'm just like how can you acknowledge that that works so well in a clinical setting but it doesn't have any impact you know on on a person's overall health that's maybe exposed in lower doses through other sources and they just are like well that's just different exactly great observation the mycophenolic acid yeah this stuff is known to be a, an immune suppressant and yet, if you hear people talk about sick building syndrome and these mystery illnesses, they always go, inflammation, inflammation, it's, it's all inflammation. Wait a minute. If it's an immune suppressant, maybe it's the other direction. Maybe it's not inflammation at all. It's having your immune system turned off and they look at you like you're crazy. I'm curious. Just Sorry, go ahead, Eric. I was going to say this was brought out at the uh, 2019 Mold Congress with Dr. Chin Yang talked about the amazing characteristic of Stachybotrys' evil twin, Stachybotrys chlorohalinata, which puts out the immunosuppressive compounds without the neuroinflammatory ones. And they felt that perhaps many of the times when they thought Stachybotrys was present, but not harmful or exerting an effect, could be because it was this indistinguishable chemotype, this morphologically identical to Stachybotrys charterum but it's actually a different type of mold that only shuts off the immune system. So when people show up with all kinds of vague mystery illnesses, but no real overt inflammatory problems, that they should suspect this. And of course, if you have your immune system switched off without any other symptoms, it would stand to reason that you wouldn't be able to get it over Epstein-Barr virus or HHV6 or mycoplasma or Lyme disease or pretty much anything else. So Lisa, you were going to speak? Yeah, it's just, it's so interesting that <laughs> this is so prevalent, yet no one seems to know anything about it, especially in the medical realm. Uh, and people have to jump through so many hoops to just get some sort of understanding of what's going on in their body, which is definitely crazy making. And with your experiences and, you know, in all the institutions that you worked for, did you ever just, you know, conduct a survey of your own and go up to doctors in these institutions and ask them about what they think about mold and, and how it affects health. Did you ever do any of that during your time working? Um, not during my, my time working, but, um, you know, sort of in the, in the process of, cause I, I still see doctors at some of these institutions for sort of for, um, you know, basically for other reasons. And, um, you know, like for instance, one of the, you know, symptoms I sort of developed was, a uh, an adult asthma 
like, um, you know, syndrome that hasn't really been a problem for me lately, but sort of in the, in the process of discovering mold. And I even discovered mold in, in my own home, in my own heating and air conditioning system. And, and I kind of gave that information to one of the, the respiratory, um, you know, one of the pulmonologists that I, I had seen. And basically they were like, oh, well, we'll, you know, run, we can run some, you know, some septum samples. And if we find something in there, you know, we'll just put you on a, you know, an anti, I, I can't remember the exact name of the medication, but, you know, basically like an anti-mold medication. And I kind of asked, I'm like, well, what about, you know, what about the the byproducts from mold? I'm like, could that be, you know, an issue? And basically it's like, no, only if you have, you know, an active like fungal infection in your body, would it be, you know, would it be something to be concerned with? So, I mean, that was just one instance, um, but that's, you know, really kind of the, um, you know, sort of just the, the general impression I've gotten from anybody that really hasn't taken the time to, you know, seek out other, you know, sort of forms of education outside of the standard medical system, um, as far as their, you know, attitudes toward mold. Out of all of the places that you worked for, how many of them had ongoing mold issues that they decided to ignore? Um, I think pretty much every, you know, every building that I worked in either had something related to what was happening inside of the equipment or what was happening, like related to the equipment from a water intrusion standpoint, because that's kind of another part of the whole spectrum related to heating and air conditioning is that you have rooftop mounted equipment and a lot of times there's just maybe a single bead of caulk that keeps water from making its way you know sort of bypassing the roof structure itself and making its way into the building you know at that intersection of the equipment and the roof deck um so that you know it and it was kind of just like oh we'll we'll get to that we'll have our roofers take care of those kind of things or, and then just kind of trying to bring up the fact, well, what about the, you know, resulting water damage? And a lot of the attitude was like, oh, it'll dry out and then it's not a problem. You know, so basically like, we're not overtly concerned about stopping it right now, but we'll, we'll get that leak addressed and then it'll kind of just dry out on its own and then it won't be a problem anymore that, you know, basically the only time you can have mold is if you have like an active water leak. Um, well, I should bring up a little situation we've run into with this particular paradigm is that uh, those of us who are familiar with the toxic properties of mold have reached out to many, many doctors and made sure they had a full education and understanding of this phenomenon and thereafter observed that they pretend that they never heard a thing. There have been prominent doctors out there who for 20 years say, oh, yes, mold is serious and dangerous and you should stay away from it. And that's about it. They don't tell people what they know about this, and that there's more to the story. So just because a doctor seems sincere and kind of acts like they, well, yeah, of course we care about mold. No, they really don't. And you really have to watch them carefully. And the only way you can tell when they're doing this is by observing when they've got a full education and then the subsequent years when they act like they know absolutely nothing about it. Yeah, and I guess kind of reaching back to... um Alicia's question there, um, sort of considering some of my experiences and one thing, even early on in my career, you know, working under some of the more senior technicians, we would take the extra time when doing a maintenance service to, um, 
you know, to clean the evaporator coil. And that's what I kind of mentioned previously. That's where the, the cooling process of the air takes place. That's where the water accumulates. That's where, um, you know, any dust or, you know, any, you know, sort of mold food can accumulate that bypasses filter systems. And, um, you know, that they would take the time to, you know, thoroughly clean it. I'm not sure if we were using the proper, proper agents, but they definitely were, you know, advertised to us that they would, um, you know, sort of sanitize the coil. And then we would also add, um, you know, they manufacture different, you know, chemical formulas of tablets that you can leave in the evaporator pans to, you know, basically to stop any mold growth from, from, or any other sort of just, you know, general biological growth from occurring there. But, um, you know, we would encounter sort of um, pushback from either property managers or property owners that we were kind of just performing an extra service that was intended to separate them from their money rather than keep their, you know, keep their equipment healthy as well as the the occupants healthy. And it's, so it's kind of like, because, you know, everybody is sort of at the will of the person paying the bill that, you know, these, these extra services that a lot of people are comfortable with doing that can sort of keep um, equipment in a much healthier state um, aren't being performed because of, you know, just from a, a, you know, a cost basis analysis by, you know, someone who doesn't really have any knowledge about actual building health or perhaps really just doesn't care about building health because they're not the ones that are sick or they're not the ones that have to work there or live there. Um, and like I said, there's, there's plenty of, you know, readily available products from a, a perspective of what's, you know, stocked at supply houses and other, um, you know, wholesalers that, that cater to the industry. It's just, it's really just not used across the board. I think from a, a perspective of that, some people just think it's sort of nothing more than a, another thing to charge the customer for rather than something that's really essential to the overall you know, dynamic of building health. Yeah, there's mold testers out there now saying that you should just consider all conditions which are propitious for mold growth to be a toxic health hazard and treat them as if they were a, a hazmat situation. You have to use full-on protocols for every situation. That's not economically feasible and it doesn't even make sense. And yet every now and then, some mold colony will pop up and it really does make people terribly sick. So how do you tell the difference? And that's the situation we're in right now. We don't always know. We can't predict. Right. And, and definitely it's, it's, um, it's obviously one of those situations and, um, you know, an ounce of prevention in this case can prevent tons of problems. Um, just from a perspective, if you get in a routine of, you know, maintenance and observation from the, from the very start, even, you know, prior to the equipment is, is installed, how it's, how it's stored on the job site. Um, you know, you, you combine all those little factors in the beginning and that can really have a huge impact on, on, um, how the system functions over its lifespan. And then of course, how it's, you know, maintained through that lifespan is a, um, there's really a tremendous return on investment for, you know, kind of going with the the best standard of practice from a maintenance standpoint, rather than you know waiting till you have a problem. And and not only do you have to deal with the expense of equipment replacement, but how do you contain 
what's in that equipment that's harmful to, to the building while you're trying to, you know, replace it in a in a in essentially a finished space. Absolutely. This is a major challenge for our time. How do we deal with something that just gets into the air and fills up a building? So this has been sort of our goal to get top researchers to address some of these questions. Is there any way to make this more predictable so that we don't have to panic every time we see a spot of mold? And um, I guess what, one thing that I observed, because I still have some, some friends in the industry, um, you know, that are, that are working actively in the field, as well as, um, you know, people that work on the administrative um, sales project management side. And unfortunately, I've lost some contact with some folks, but definitely at the, you know, beginning of the, of the, the COVID pandemic, there was all of a sudden this huge focus on air quality. Um, you know, installing different treatment systems and, um, you know, it seems like kind of like that, you know, maybe was the case for about a year, a year and a half. And then it's, it sort of just fell by the wayside. And, um, but from my perspective, I was really enthusiastic about that because, you know, I was like, okay, finally, maybe just, even though it's not the target of these sort of design changes, it's definitely going to have a huge impact on, you know, the ability of, of, of mold to grow in these pieces of equipment. And now it seems like that's sort of been maybe not, you know, completely abandoned, but it's not right at the sort of the top of the list uh, from a design perspective, like it used to be just even in, you know, basically a handful of months ago. Yeah. It seems like after a burst of enthusiasm, uh, things kind of lose their steam and go back to business as usual. It's just been so crazy and manip manipulative i feel like how the agenda has been pushed as to like oh now we care about air quality whereas before they never did you know it's like covid is the one that really pushed forward like you said the use of air scrubbers and all this stuff like when in the history of viral illnesses have we ever cared about increasing or improving our air quality in buildings and transmission of these things like people used to go to work with the flu sick not caring right and all of a sudden we have something similar to the flu and now we're focused on indoor air quality and and air health and all this crap. It's just, I feel like it's one big manipulation to make us think that we need to be just concerned about viral transmission when really maybe there's something bigger at play and it's actually the mold and they're not saying the mold, but they're saying everything else, but the mold we sat in on a white house interview or meeting that they had the other day. It was like a three hour summit where they talked about all the aspects of what the the country is going to do to increase indoor air quality and improve infrastructure and improve living conditions for people in section eight and of um, lower economic status and not mention not one mention was there mold in that conversation it was oh we need to make sure we hood all of the stoves so that way people aren't inhaling cooking particulates and they don't get sick from that or covid transmission or you know climate change and the growing of, you know, wildfires and also the crap that they like to throw on and give excuse when they're not going to the root of the problem. And the root of the problem that we're seeing really is the mold growth um, and how that is affecting our air quality. Keely Severson is passionate and committed to exposing the truth about toxic mold and its effects on the human body. 
Many mold-injured people are often misdiagnosed with autoimmune conditions, nerve damage, mental illnesses, and other chronic health conditions due to the lack of knowledge about water damage and toxic mold growing in their homes. The crippling effects of toxic mold on the body has destroyed many lives. Been there, done that. When she became a healthcare provider specializing in acupuncture and herbal medicine, it was only then that she truly began to understand the connection between her health and the environment that she was living in. Three years after becoming a licensed care provider, she became incredibly ill. She was suffering from kidney failure, reoccurring UTIs, and various negative mental health symptoms. When she learned that her family had been dwelling with mold trapped under her kitchen floor, the relationship between the toxic mold factor and her health finally began to make sense. It became part of her life's mission to help educate society on the extreme effects that mold can have on the body. Her work is vital because there exists a lack of experience and acknowledgement for mainstream medical practitioners and even mold experts. She has firsthand experience dealing with mold exposure and she makes sure to address all the signs and symptoms during every environmental screening that she performs. She's developed a line of organic herbal tinctures and formulas to help most patients reduce symptoms commonly associated with toxic mold exposures. These symptoms vary and can manifest themselves very differently from person to person. Her herbal education and experience has helped her increase awareness and recognize signs in patients that may result from their toxic environments. Keely's dedication to learning and understanding the effects of toxic mold and educating and bringing awareness to her patients and other providers keep her motivated. She knows just how devastating the untreated consequences can be on your health and the health of your families, relationships, and life outcomes. If you or someone you know may be affected by toxic mold exposure, rest assured that you and Keely will work together to find a solution. By working together to treat the symptoms and stay educated on toxic mold exposures, we can reduce the impact of this devastating phenomenon. To consult with Keely, please visit exposingmold.com slash consultations. That's exposingmold.com slash C-O-N-S-U-L-T-A-T-I-O-N-S. Book your appointment today. So I know to all of our listeners, just to cap this conversation off, um, what are some, I guess, tips or pieces of advice that you would give to people listening today to that they can use to keep their HVAC systems mold-free and ensure that it stays mold-free? Well, I think, uh, you know, just kind of like anything else in the home that, that, you know, regular maintenance is, is essential from a standpoint of, you know, filter changes. Um, but also like, you've got to make sure that your, your, you know, your filter is actually well sealed because you could have, you know, a MERV 13 filter, but if, you know, 40% of the air bypasses it, because there's not gaskets in place or anything else to to keep it airtight with the system that you're not going to get the the full benefit of it. Um, as I've mentioned, there's you know there's um, you know there's different uh, cleaning products. Definitely, as far as from an annual perspective, like prior to the cooling season, and then also at the end of the cooling season, I definitely recommend having the evaporator section cleaned and inspected. And, um, you know, there's definitely a good number of products on the market, probably now more than ever, as far as, um, 
UV systems that you can in, have installed in, in your ductwork, both on the um, supply and return side, as well as, um, you know, there's, I guess there's some debate to the effectiveness of things like, you know, plasma generators or whatever. But, um, you know, I definitely know from a personal perspective, I've seen a good increase of air quality at home um, using some of these systems. And uh, I guess, you know, there's, again, there's debate from a perspective of sort of standalone air cleaner systems. But from my experience, I've in installed, um, you know, different standalone air cleaners in different rooms in my houses at, or excuse me of, of my home and um you know from you know i basically have taken recommendations from you know kind of some of the prominent names in in uh you know in the in the mold industry many of which have appeared on previous podcasts that you've you folks have had and um you know i've found a a, a great success for myself as far as uh you know, just even generally keeping allergies and, um, you know, respiratory infections at bay and also, uh, not just for myself, but just for, you know, for my whole family. So, um, but I think it's probably important that whatever professional is performing service in your home, that they, you know, have an understanding of the impact of mold and that they're, you know, they're, they're knowledgeable in it and that they're, that they acknowledge the the impact on human health, and um, you know, obviously, I'm not in a position here to 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 list off you know contractors in different cities or anything, but I definitely know there are you know professionals that work within the within the mold world. You would say that that you know do have those referrals available, and I would um, you know if you're concerned, I would definitely um, you know go through them to find if they have someone that they approve of in your area. If there's continuous mold growth in like someone's HVAC system, is that just a sign for just a complete replacement or is cleaning just ultimately the only way to, I guess, to keep your air clean in your home while using one of those um, systems? Um, I, I would say that probably like, you know, previously I thought, you know, anything can be clean, but um, like, like I said, from just kind of, following the information that's been um, disseminated by a lot of a lot of your your guests that um, it definitely can reach a point where you just can't you know especially depending on the the sensitivity of the individual living in the space as well as the condition of the equipment that it might just uh, reach a point where it can't effectively be clean that sort of that um, you know the residual either mold growth or just fragments of of you know, dead mold essentially that can accumulate in the sort of little nooks and crannies of ductwork and and equipment just can be enough to continue to cause someone health problems. And then, you know, really at that point, the um, you know the equipment and the and the ductwork system itself may end up having to be replaced to sort of reach a, a point where um, full recovery is possible. Well, we're seeing evidence that, uh, and actually we've seen anecdotal evidence in people's descriptions for many, many years, that the very idea that spores and fragments removes the problem is a false premise, that the toxins absorb onto even porous materials and cannot be removed. They stick there by molecular bonds. And these mold experts keep saying, well, we washed everything, so therefore all your problems are gone. They, they must be gone. How many times people say, 
They don't look into it because from their view, once those spores and fragments are removed, it's impossible for anything to be there. So that's kind of the um, effect. That's the mystery that we want resolved is why is it that something that they don't know about is stuck onto objects, can be brought into our presence, keep us sick, and by their standards, it doesn't even exist. Yes, definitely. And there's there's many, and again, depending on the design of the ductwork, um, you know, ductwork systems are still being produced today that have insulation on the inside to help control sound, but yet that's a perfect environment for what you described for where even if all mold growth and spore fragments and everything else to remove, that's the perfect environment for, um, you know, for those, you know, the root cause chemicals to, to, you know, grip onto and just, you know, I couldn't think of, you know, from my experience, any way to, you know, to clean that. I kind of think about when, you know, someone gets their carpets cleaned at home. It's like, yeah, the carpets look clean at first, but you give it two or three weeks and it's almost like the dirt sort of just comes back magically. Um, and I think it's probably a, a very similar situation with, you know, any sort of insulation material inside of any of this equipment or any of the ductwork where it's just sort of a permanent depository. And once you get, um, you know, get the bad stuff in there, there's really, the only option is replacement. Yeah, that flexible fiberglass ductwork I mean, it's supposed to be completely sealed. All that plastic on the inside is supposed to keep those fiberglass particulates out of the air. And people have been really, really poor about rips and tears or the ductwork falling apart so that every time the air goes through, it's picking up a little bit of those glass fibers and you get to breathe them. Yeah, and I guess, and one thing of note is also that kind of from a filter perspective that, um, you know, sort of your 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 cheapest filters that, are probably going to be most often used um, in a situation where, um, I guess, from a tenant perspective, that you know, you're if you're not responsible for the for the cost of maintenance, that if it's the you know the property owner, the property manager, most likely those that's what's going to be used, and those are actually made of of fiberglass. Incredible. So it's yeah, it's it, and that's always it's it's always puzzled me even before you know, I really experienced any, you know, significant health problems as a, um, you know, worker and a student in the industry. I just, I felt that was just, just a really bad idea to make a filter out of something that's, you know, depending on which health authority you, you speak to is, you know, is, or has been listed as a, as a cancer threat and who knows what other, you know, kinds of, uh, you know, health threats as well. So that's what we need to do. If we see something that really doesn't make sense, call out our experts on it and ask them, why are they doing this? Absolutely. <clears throat> but um, I mean, I guess that, that like one thing that is sort of, you know, refreshing for, for me as a professional that, and again, this, this ties into events of recent times is that people have been, you know, much more aware of, um, you know, not only just the, the basic need to change filters, but putting, you know, higher filters in their systems, um, changing them more often and, and sort of the, there was always kind of a myth, I think almost in the, in the industry that if you put a, you know, higher efficiency filter in that you're going to, it's going to cause more, um, 
you know, basically more drag and therefore you're going to consume more energy. Um, and that was kind of always a one reason that I heard to not put a higher efficiency filter in. But, um, you know, a lot of the filters that are available now, they've actually, the way that they, even though it filters more finely, they also have more surface area to sort of negate that effect that would, um, you know, increase the end user's, um, you know, energy consumption. Well, a major problem with this particular substance that we're dealing with is that the um, agent, whatever it is, sticks in a filter. And even though the larger portion of it may be caught, the volatilized portion, the agent that affects us most um, strongly, comes out of the filter anyway. So the filter becomes a source point rather than helping remove anything harmful. But uh, we can get into that for another discussion. Sure. Well, thank you so much, Carrie, for joining us. We appreciate it. Um, I hope it wasn't too crazy of an interview for you. Um, I Again, we do appreciate your perspective. And just in the side of the heating and cooling systems and what you're seeing in hospitals and government institutions, I feel like this conversation definitely um, has been much needed and and wanted uh, by our audience members, by us, because we just really want to know what's going on. If, you know, landlords and property managers are ignoring it on their end, doctors are ignoring it on their end. What are these bigger institutions doing? You know, are they addressing it? Are they also ignoring it? Um, And it seems like now, kind of what you mentioned earlier, that everyone kind of has this awareness of like indoor air quality being highly important. Um, And it seems like we're moving into that direction. I just hope that mold gets you know, called out into that mix and not just climate change and COVID. Um, let's really get to the truth of the matter here. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know if you're working right now or if you're consulting. Um, I don't know if uh, it would be appropriate for me to ask for your information if people want to reach out to you. Um, it's really whatever you're comfortable with, Carrie. Um, sure. I mean, yeah, I, I'll pass some information along. I'm not really like set up right now um, you know, from a official business perspective, but the, the further I've gone in my journey to recover from my health, the more I've realized that I need to kind of take all my professional experiences and, and make that available to the public to, you know, for, to help other people, both, uh, you know, from a, a perspective of worker protection, as well as, um, you know, from the, for the health of just the individual in general, um, and I guess just one thing that I kind of just popped into my head, and I'm sorry to add it at the end, but um, one thing that I have observed consistently throughout, um, you know, my career is that the one place that really did have the best practices as far as air quality was uh, uh, daycare facilities. And that would also include care facilities within some of these other problem institutions um, that they would always have the like for sort of what I would consider a general space, um, not like a sort of lab specific or patient specific space, but just from a general occupied space perspective that they would have the the best practices as far as, um, you know, filtration, UV light systems, uh, outside air percentages, all that stuff. So I think that kind of speaks to, um, you know, sort of the, the observations from, um, an industry that, that, um, you know, works specifically with, um, you know, some of the, I I don't want to say 
with those young developing immune systems, there seems to be a lot of pathogens that, that, that pass around. And it seems that they've figured it out that there's definitely a, a cost benefit to, you know, protecting the air quality in those spaces. There's nothing worse than having dead children on, <laughs> on your rap sheet. I feel like that, I don't know, maybe they have more care concern for that. I hope I'm not really seeing that universally, but um, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I think everyone is fully aware whoever needs to know knows about what's going on. So at least that's good to note that they are you know, <laughs> at least taking the time to I guess, produce better air quality or maintain good air quality in these daycare facilities. Um, so yeah, Carrie, uh, once you get something up and running, let us know. We'll go ahead and put your information out there. And I, I really don't want to bombard you now since it sounds like you're in the development phase. I'm sure there'll be a ton of people trying to email you and ask you questions. So we'll save you from that. And when you're ready, just let us know. Okay. Okay. Sounds great. This, yeah, great. today's experience been a tremendous catalyst for that so it it'll be hopefully not too much longer yeah awesome and we'd love to maybe have you on in the future for a live or something where we can do a Q&A or something like that we'll, we'll reach out later on in the future um, thanks again everyone for joining us today it was wonderful and we'll see you next time